Good morning. It's always a pleasure to uh, be able to preach for you guys. One of the requirements at the, the seminary that Rob teaches at and that I go to is each student is required to take about two years of Greek and two years of Hebrew. And about four years ago is when I first started the Greek portion of it. And I remember just being in this, state, uh, this constant state of discouragement and stress all throughout those two years, where after every class, I would leave the Greek, Greek class realizing how, how little I know just about English, let alone Greek. <laughs> and it eventually got to a point where I made it to the final semester. And if I passed this class, if I managed to survive this one, that would mean I would never have to open a Greek New Testament again. <laughs> but the caveat is that if I didn't pass the class, that class was not scheduled to be offered for another three years. Meaning, I would inevitably end up forgetting everything I learned up to that point and just have to retake everything. And I can laugh about it now because of how much time has passed, but I ended up failing that Greek class. And I remember sitting at my, at my computer desk that night, just staring at a blank computer screen for about an hour, contemplating about all those weeks, hours, years spent just reading about participles, datives, genitives, the grammar sharp clause rule, translating, parsing verbs, and all, just all that blood, sweat, and tears that was put into it, and how it felt like it just in a moment all that was just worthless and meant nothing. And, and the reality is when, when pastors and counselors and missionaries have to give an account for their ministry to God on the last day, that's exactly what the majority of them are going to experience. You're going to have many ministers who have dedicated decades of their life to the ministry. Many pastors who had sacrificed much. But at the end of the day, God's going to spit it out like lukewarm water because it wasn't done in the way that he wanted them to do it. The ministries wasn't based off of doing things God's way. It was based off of pragmatism. It was based off of what could get the most emotional response. It was based off of just their own opinions. And... I, I can't help but imagine just how many ministers, as they are eagerly anticipating those words that every minister wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. They're just going to watch the ministry burn. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire would test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 
Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. But God's temple is holy and you are that temple. We're going to be looking at three cautions for the minister. Three cautions for the minister. And just to recap, for those of you who who weren't here a few weeks ago, we we had previously preached through the first nine verses of this chapter, where, as you remember, Paul is basically rebuking these people for being divisive over which spiritual leader is is their go-to guy. You have people who are being prideful and divisive over the fact that they follow Apollos over Paul, or, and other people are prideful over following Cephas. You know, and, and essentially the issue is they're, they're putting the glory and the pride in man and man's philosophy rather than in God himself. And Paul goes on to teach about how the ministers are just empty vessels that unless God's the one who is actually empowering them, unless God's the one who is actually doing the work, they're just empty tools. You're, you're worshiping just a, a, um, a useless tool when you should be worshiping the God who's giving power to that instrument. And he goes on to say about how while you guys are divided, the reality is the ministers are united. They're united with each other by motive, with the goal, with their methods. Everything is united. And not only are they united with each other, but, but with God also. They all have the same goal in mind. And he concludes with, with talking about how he is God's fellow worker, And the project he has been assigned is God's building, which is the church. So as we come from there, now he goes on to to these seven verses to talk about how a construction builder goes about building this this project, the means he uses. And keep in mind also that this is a city, the city of Corinth is, is oversaturated with philosophy, with worldly wisdom. As we said before, this is essentially what bridges northern and southern Greece. So you have everyone coming in and out who desires to travel, and they're bringing all the philosophy with them. And this eventually bleeds into the Corinthian church. In fact, so much so that Paul has to spend the first two chapters of this letter just differentiating between divine wisdom and worldly wisdom. On top of that, the church is just susceptible to false teachings. And that, that becomes readily apparent in the, his second last, uh, letter when he's dealing with the false apostles. And so he prefaces this in verse 10 by saying this. Go ahead and look at verse 10 with me. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it. So he's recounting what we see in Acts 18 about his initial visit to Corinth, about when he first begins to plant this this Corinthian church, about how he's the one who laid the foundation, he's the one that that started the groundwork, and now you have all these other people who are are building upon it, continuing his project. And he does something very smart here. Keep in mind, there are many people he's writing to that are being divisive and prideful over the fact that they are following Paul. You have people that, that that's what they're priding in. And now he's about to tell them, I'm the master builder. I was the one who laid the foundation. The last thing he wants to do is give them more reason to boast in him. So he prefaces this whole thing by, by, by starting out with saying, according to the grace of God given to me. This is his way of saying, 
Even though I was a master builder, even though I laid the foundation, God, if it wasn't for God's grace, I wouldn't have been able to do this. And he continues on by now addressing the ministers. <clears throat> we see this at the, the second half of verse 10. When he says, let each one take care of how he builds upon it. And he's not specifically think, having Apollos in mind or any of those guys. He's, he, he's just thinking of ministers in general. When you look at the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 14, 15, we see that this is a church who has many teachers. And then as Paul says, but only one father. This is a church that, that is, is welcoming anyone who wants the title of teacher or office or Sunday school teacher. They just let, allow, allow anyone in. Which brings us to the first point. Point one, the first caution for the minister is that the minister's foundation must be Christ. The minister's foundation must be Christ. Look at verse 11 with me. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. See, when we think about the significance of a foundation, this is going to be the make it or break it part of a building. This is the most important part of a structure. There, it has two purposes. The first purpose is just to, to support all the weight that's going to go on it. And the second purpose is just to protect it from environmental disasters. It's to protect it from floods, from strong winds, all these things. And if, if you don't get it down to a T, the foundation, it's just gonna, the whole thing is going to crumble. Turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 47 through 49. <clears throat> Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And, and this is Jesus speaking. <clears throat> he is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not, not, and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, it immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So here we have Jesus giving us this picture of two men. One of them had built a foundation, the other one hasn't. Everything else was the same. They built the same house. They put in the same labor. They had the same motive. Everything was the same except for that one crux. They even had the same natural disaster hit them. But the reality is the one that had the foundation, it didn't even shake. And the truth is if your foundation and your ministry is, not, is anything other than the person and work of Christ, it is inevitably going to crumble. The, the second the slightest gust of wind hits, you're just going to collapse upon yourself. Philosophy, when you think about it, is always going to try to answer three questions. One question philosophy is always going to try to answer is, um, what should we do? It, it, it's an ethics question. What, how are we to live? The second question it's going to answer is, how do we know what we know? Epistemology. How, how do we know that what we believe is actually true? 
And the last question, which is what the, we're focusing on today, that philosophy tries to answer, is what is ultimate? What, what is the foundation for all of existence, for all of reality? What, what is it that anchors all of reality together so that we can make sense of everything? And if it's anything other than Christ, you can't even, you, you, you're going to start contradicting yourself. You won't be able to make sense of morality, ethics, uh, uniformity, logic, no, nothing you can make. You can't make sense of anything unless you start with Christ. And when you, the thing is, when you talk to most people, their foundation is not scripture, it's not Jesus. What is it? It's their emotions. I feel like I'm a woman. Therefore, I am a woman. And, and, and maybe it's not emotions, maybe it's just experience. Where you, as a white man, have no grounds to tell that woman she can't kill her baby because you haven't experienced what she experienced. You, you don't know the kind of emotions and turmoil she's going through. And unless, you, unless you have went through all of that, you can't tell her what to do. The ministry of the pastor has to be Christ-centered. That's always going to be what the foundation is. Ephesians 2, the passage that, that Pastor Carl read to us today, describes Jesus as a cornerstone. When, when you think of a cornerstone, this is the first brick that a construction worker lays down. And this is going to be the reference point for all the other bricks that follow. Meaning that there is not a single brick that's laid down throughout that entire project that doesn't have that specific one in mind. You do not have the freedom to lay down a brick here because it looks prettier Oh, here because it just works out, out easier for you. you. Everything has to take that one brick into account. Same thing with the doctrine we teach. Everything has to keep Jesus in mind. And the quickest way to see if a ministry or a church is foundationed on Christ is just by looking at the preaching. The preaching is going to be the, the, the heavy artillery of the pastor. This is going to be what fully exposes what the church is actually grounded on. Tony Morita says this about preaching being Christ-centered. We must avoid Christless sermons. According to some hermeneutical plans, we could preach through the book of Nehemiah, verse by verse, yet never mention Jesus. And the sermon would still technically be expository. However, no Jewish rabbi should be able to sit comfortably under the preaching of the Old Testament. So in other words, even the texts that don't have Jesus or God explicitly stated, you should somehow still be directing it towards it. There's something wrong where if you're an unbeliever here, where you're coming in week after week and you don't feel conviction where you don't feel the, the realization that you are on your way to hell unless you trust and repent in the gospel. If that's the case, either you're not listening to the preaching or the pastor is not preaching what he should be. A perfect example of keeping, of, of keeping your preaching Christ in is just look at the book of Ruth. Next time you read Ruth, count how many times you see God mentioned. No, I don't even think it's once. <laughs> It's zero times. But, but when you listen to most preachers go through that book, they preach it as this, this, this extravagant love story, and that's the whole point of the book. 
But the reality is the, the, the epic climax of that entire book is not when, when Ruth meets Boaz, it's not when she's sleeping at his feet, it's not when they get married. It's the very last verse of that book. And what is it? It's just a genealogy where you realize that the son Ruth gave birth to, Obed, is the father of Jesse. See, what I'm not saying is that you should over-spiritualize every text that you come across to force Jesus into it. But as Ben Aubrey says, when you take a text and you zoom the lens out far enough, you will always get to a point where you see Christ at some point. And when you have a church or ministry that the foundation is Christless, you're going to have a lifeless church. This foundation is what separates us from a cult. Do you realize that? A cult, by its very definition, is an organization that has a misplaced hope. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses have a completely different Jesus from us. Mormon Catholics, which I would call a cult by all means, have a completely different foundation, which is not the works of Christ, it's your works. And when you start preaching text and scripture without Jesus in mind, you inevitably are just going to be preaching moralism. You're you're not going to be preaching on the grace and mercy and works of Christ. You're going to be preaching, try a little harder. Be a better husband. Be a better wife. Just raise your kids a little better. Put a little more effort into it. And eventually that just wears on you. Because you have no power source. You're relying on the flesh at that point. I remember when I first got saved, I, I had next to no theology. I didn't know what to look for in a church. But I knew just enough theology to know that if I wanted to kill the sins and idols that I was enslaved to, the only way to do that is to cultivate a love and affection for Christ that outweighed that affection I had for these idols. And the way you often can do that is by sitting under sound preaching, Christ-centered preaching. And so I just picked the first church that came to mind, which ended up just being a, a very man-centered, moralistic church. And the first sermon, there was no mention of the gospel, no mention of Christ. It was how to be happy being a single person. And so I went the next week desperately praying <laughs> that I would hear just a glimpse of Christ. And that sermon was how to not be a bad husband. And this went on for several weeks. Which, and eventually, the thing that drove me out was the fact that they opened the worship service with Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah, you, you heard me right. When you think of a foundation for building, usually the foundation is what's hidden. This is the part that you don't notice. In fact, in fact a sign of a good foundation is that you don't notice it at all. But for the church, it's the complete opposite. The foundation is what should be constantly shoved in your face. This should be the part that is most uh, obvious. This is the part that you can't run away from even if you try. See, the, the issue so many people have is they, they approach the works of Christ and the person of Christ as almost this, this 101 Christianity thing where the goal is just to get that to get saved, but then you get to graduate from that and you get on to the meteor stuff. Yeah, give me the gospel, but I want to be done with that so I can get into covenant theology. 
I want to get into the hyperstatic unit. Ooh, maybe even superlapsarianism. That's, what, that's where all the meat is. But, but the reality is you don't graduate from the gospel. In fact, the most arrogant thing you can say is that I don't need to hear the gospel. I already know it. When you're a Christian, the gospel is something you love to hear over and over again. This is something that you want to be reminded of constantly, just the mercy that Christ has shown you. And as you get into all these meteor topics and areas of theology, what this should do is drive you deeper into the foundation, not away from it. The second point, the second caution for a minister is that the minister must be careful of how he builds. The minister must be careful of how he builds. We see this in verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 12 with me. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. See, now we're talking about the methods that the minister uses. And the first thing that that this verse gives us is just the options you have between the materials. So here you have the options of the valuable materials, which are gold, silver, and precious stone. But then you have these other ones that are the perishable uh, materials, like wood, hay, and straw. And as Paul is talking about this, he's referring to them as the teachings you bring into the church, the doctrine that you start uh, preaching. And when you think of gold, silver, precious stone, these are materials that you have to labor for. These are materials that you have to sacrifice for. If a preacher wants to preach with these kind of materials, he's going to have to spend hours, days, weeks in a given text. He's going to have to mine for it. He's going to have to labor This is something that that you can't just be flipping about. You're going to have to give everything you have to to get these kind of materials. And then you're going to have the other option, which is just being a pragmatic pastor, where you just want to check the checkbox to get your sermon out of the way. You just want to use the text just to talk about your emotions and your opinions. This is what a ministry with wood and hay looks like. And as we look at verse 13, we see that the works of the pastor is going to be made known. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. See, there's going to be a day when the works and ministry of a pastor is on full display for everyone around him to see. See, in this life... On the service level, someone's ministry may look like it's, it has all these conversions. You have all these altar calls where you gain 50 people coming up every service. where you, 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 It's almost like God has his hand on it. Ministry where you see emotions and affirmations and amens all over the place. But on the last day when it's judged, you're going to see this was just garbage. God is going to judge the methods of the pastor. Did he do things how God wanted to or did he do it man's way? He's going to judge on the accuracy of how he handled the text. Was he preaching what the text actually said, or was he just uh, using this as a stamp to give approval to what he was saying? And verse 5 of the next chapter makes it clear that God's also going to disclose the purposes of your heart. He's going to judge the motives of the pastor. You can be a pastor who labors and does everything right, but if you have the wrong motive your work is still going to be burned. 
This is, and James kind of adds to this when he warns that not all of you should be teachers because you're going to be held to a strict judgment. And the means that this judgment is going to occur is going to be by fire. Verse 13, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. See, in the New Testament, whenever you see that day or the, the day, that's typically referring to the second coming of Christ, the, the, the judgment day. And when we think of the judgment day, we think of the day where God's going to gloriously judge all the sinners and send them to hell, and, and he's gonna, we're going to see his full sense of justice on display. But the reality is he's going to judge us too. Not in a salvific way, not in a way to determine whether we go to heaven or hell, but he's going to judge the accounts we give for all the good works that he laid before us in eternity past. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And when we think of fire, this is often referring to either judgment or testing. First Peter uses the same language when he talks about how through trials our, te- our faith is being tested. And when you think about what happens when you put a, a piece of gold in a fire, you're, you're never going to pull it out and see scorch marks or damage or burns. You're never going to see that on gold. In fact, when you put precious material in fire, it just purifies it. All the blemishes and imperfections that are in that gold are just going to be disintegrated by the fire. So what ends up happening is the the fire makes the materials and the the work you've done even more precious than when it first came in. But on the other end of the the spectrum, what happens when you put wood, straw, hay? It makes the fire just blow up and get out of control. And when we look at verse 14, we see that the quality work of the pastor will be rewarded. Look at verse 14 with me. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. So what is this reward? He's not talking about salvation here, but he's talking about heavenly treasures. And, and, and we don't know if these heavenly treasures are going to be a seat closer to Christ as we feast with them. We don't know if it's going to be some other treasure. But the, the, the great truth is that, that whatever treasure, even in the slightest amount that the minister receives in heaven, this is beyond comprehension in this life. This is something that, that for all eternity you're going to have and it's never going to rot or disintegrate or break. You're going to have this for all eternity. But there's two conditions to receiving this reward. In verse 14, it says that this, found, this work must be built on the foundation. That's the first condition. Meaning, if your ministry is built on anything other than Christ, you're automatically disqualified from whatever heavenly treasures you would receive. But the second condition is that it has to survive the fire. Your ministry is going to have to survive the scrutiny of, of God's own standard. And as we get to verse 15, we see that the work that's burned is going to result in loss. Look at verse 15. 
If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And again, we're not talking about losing salvation. That's obvious because right here he says that they're still going to be saved only as through fire. But we're talking about losing these words. And the picture is you have this man being rescued out of a burning building. Whereas you look at him, you see all these burn marks, ashes. He's coughing up smoke, limping. And as he looks behind him, he sees all his belongings. Everything he has to his name just burned, lost. That's the picture of the minister who does things his way rather than God's way. And you may have some pastors who come up and say, well, you know, on that last day, Christ is going to wipe away all your tears. There's not going to be suffering. I don't need to worry about this. This this doesn't really apply. My response to someone like that would be, if if you are doing ministry in a way you know God is not pleased with, that's a sign you have some other motive than pleasing God. There is some selfish ulterior motive that you have for ministry. And the way we see churches bringing in all this wood, hay, straw today, one of the big ways is just look at all the churches going woke. See, the, a lot of these pastors, they, they're not ignorant to the history of the Black Lives Movement. These people know that this comes from Marxism. They know that this teaches the false gospel, that, that Christ is enough to, to atone and cleanse you of all your sins, except your racism. You're going to have to spend the rest of your life just apologizing for that. They, they know that this is a movement that teaches that, that any form of authority is oppressive and should be, be, be destroyed, including the government, police, even Christian parenting by their standards is oppressive. And yet, arrogantly, these pastors have this mindset that we can just take the good parts of that philosophy and just leave out the bad stuff and we'll be okay. There, there, we need to take heed lest we fall even over our doctrine. When you start thinking that you are above being influenced by a doctrine, you will fall. And at that point, the motive is just pragmatism. We're going to do this, we're going to use this philosophy because it works. We're going to use this philosophy because it helps us better communicate with those around us. And another big way you see the church allowing this same kind of philosophy bleed in is just from the psychology movement. So many pastors have bought into the lie that caring for the souls of the flock is a job for a professional. There was a case study I came across a couple years ago about a Christian young lady who had slept with a boy at her summer camp. So overridden and overcome with grief and conviction, she began to see a Christian psychologist. And this particular psychologist was a big fan of B.F. Skinner, the American psychologist. So this was her counsel to her as she tried to bring in the Skinnerian thought into her approach. You obviously feel terrible for sleeping with this boy. This is, this is what you need to do. Go out and sleep with as many men as you can. Because what's going to happen is the more you sleep with these people, the less bad you feel about it. Which is very consistent with what Skinner would say. See, when you try bringing in philosophy from the psychology movement, this affects your theology. 
philosophy and psychology, all these things, black lives matter, whatever, this is always going to view the way you interpret scripture and what it says. Let me give you one more example. Mark McKimmon is one of the leading proponents of the whole Christian psychology movement today. And in his book, Psychology, Theology, and Spirituality, he spends several chapters talking about how as as these Christian psychologists and therapists and integrationists try to bring in this philosophy into the practice. We need to remember that Scripture is what's authoritative. We need to remember that we can't allow psychology to influence our lens that we interpret Scripture. And whenever something happens that contradicts Scripture, Scripture is always going to trump it. Things that, we, that sound right. But the very next chapter, listen to what he says when he's asked the question of, should we pray with our counselees? Praying in some situations can be harmful. For example, praying with an actively schizophrenic or manic patient could be destructive and harmful to the fragile psychological state of the patient and to the treatment relationship. I believe routine in-session prayer introduces significant risk and minimal benefits to the counseling relationship. And this is one of the people that seminaries and Christian universities are using for their counseling departments. The next generation of pastors and counselors are being trained to see prayer as as this. Let me give you one more example. Another leading proponent, Dr. Gary Collins, another Christian psychologist, says this when he's asked the question of, is scripture really sufficient to equip you for every good work? Some human problems are not mentioned in the scriptures. The, problem was not written at, the, the, the Bible was not written as a self-help question and answer book covering every possible human problem. It does not claim to be a textbook of counseling techniques or personal problem solving. Surely we should not force it to be something that it does not claim to be. And I would draw his attention to 2 Timothy and 2 Peter where it says this is a book that has everything pertaining to life and godliness. This is a book that, ha- that, is, that is sufficient to equip the man of God, not for some, not for most, but for every good work, including the good work of counseling someone with anxiety, the good work of counseling someone with anger, counseling the one struggling with homosexuality, all these things. The scripture has everything you could possibly need for it. Yet because this goes against the straw and hay that these people have brought into their their theology, they disregard it. And this brings us to the last point, point three. The third caution for the minister is that those who defile God's temple will be destroyed. Those who defile God's temple will be destroyed. And one thing we see in verse 16 is that this is a church that's not living with the reality of who they really are. Look at verse 16 with me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's temple draws in you? See, see he's framing this as a rhetorical question. And whenever Paul uses this kind of question or or Christianology, whatever you want to call it, this is his way of, of saying This is such a basic, rudimentary, foundational truth. Why am I having to go over this again with you? And there's two reasons why he might be saying this. One could be that because of the lack of unity in this church, because of how they're being divisive over all these 
these uh, spiritual leaders, that they're demonstrating they don't really know they're the temple of God, which there's a lot of merit to that. I'll give it. But I think what he's referring to is the fact that there's, they're allowing all these false teachers into the church. See, when you look at Corinthians chapter 15, you, the, the longest chapter in all the letter, what's it over? It's over the fact that they allow teachers to, to preach against the resurrection. And he's rebuking these, these people. He's saying that if this is true, there's, then eat, drink, and be merry. There's no point. You're going to die anyway. And then in 2 Corinthians 11.4, he says this, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is a church that you can come in and preach whatever gospel you want. You can preach whatever Jesus you want. Oh, faith and grace alone, that, that's, that's so 20th century. We, we, we do works. And this church would rarely accept it. Whatever is, is hip, that's going to be what they jump on board with. And as we look at verse 17, we see that the punishment for these false teachers, um, the severity of it. Look at verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. <clears throat> I'm using the ESV, and if, if anyone else is is using that it's going to say destroy but you can also translate it as defile this is someone who is defiling destroying harming god's temple this is someone who's who's wreaking destruction on the church and something very interesting about this is there's something different going on between this guy and the one who's building with wood hay and straw because when you look at that guy you see that he's still saved He's going to be caught, saved through fire, but he's still saved. But there's something about this builder, this minister, that is sending him to hell. See, Paul is referring to a wolf here. This is not someone who's just teaching against tertiary issues, someone who's just teaching kind of shallow theology. This is someone who's teaching something destructive. This is someone who's not standing on the right foundation, on the right gospel. Turn, turn to Second Peter, chapter chapter two. Second Peter, chapter two. <clears throat> and look at the first three verses with me. But false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many are going to follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So here you have a picture of people who are secretly bringing in heresies. They're not necessarily preaching by the pulpit, but they've somehow found a way to get it in without being noticed. Let me tell you how a wolf operates. Every time a wolf is discovered or kicked out of a church, they will inevitably go to some other church to wreak their havoc. 
And what happens is every time they do this, they get better and better at masking themselves. They know how to look more and more like a sheep. These, they know the topics to avoid. They know the, the, the people to avoid. They know those who are close to the pastors and how uh, they, they have to keep their distance even from them. And, and this is what they'll do. They'll find the people who are hungry for theology. They'll find the ones who are weak in their doctrine, the ones who are baby Christians, and they'll just cast a little piece of bait out to them. The second they get a bite, they wheel them in, and that's when the destruction starts happening. Happening. I knew of a wolf, different church, long time ago, who did this exact same thing. And guess what he was teaching the, these, these younger believers? Christ did not pay for your sins on the cross. People like that are going to be in hell. And as we look at the ver- end of verse 17, we see the reason that God does this punishment. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. It's true that on an individual level, each one of you, and myself included, is a temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells with us in an individual way, but also in a corporate way, which is what Paul's talking about here. See, the Holy Spirit... And God, they, they, yes, they are omnipresent. They're everywhere all at once. But there's a special way he dwells with us when we gather together for, for worship. Turn, turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. The first eight verses. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple scarlet yarns and fine twined linen goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, Oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And here, here's, here's the important part. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. You continue reading in the next several chapters is 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 God giving Moses explicit, detailed, meticulous instructions down to a T on exactly how he wants every aspect of this, t- of this tabernacle made. See, just as we look in the Old Testament of how, God, how picky God was about how he made his dwelling place, he's just as picky about that in today's church. In fact, when you look at Leviticus 15, 30, the, you were given the death penalty if you defiled the tabernacle. Same thing here. Anyone who's going to defile and destroy God's tabernacle, God's temple, will be destroyed. And on top of that, this, these instructions were so precise that as you read, you find out that God had to even grant 
the spirit to give them a supernatural ability in their craftsmanship and their in their in their job to be able just to keep up with these instructions. This is a good reminder of how much God cares for how his bride is treated. A while back, I, I was at a, a G3 conference and Paul Washer was speaking about the destruction you see all the pastors having over today's church. And the way he put it is that you have a king who's about to go off to battle for several months. And he's told his servant, I am giving you my bride to take care of. You're, you're in charge of taking care of her, feeding her, clothing her, all these things until I get back. And you look at the pastor today and they are humiliating the bride. They are dressing her like a harlot. They don't care about how the king wanted his bride to be taken care of. And, and Washer made the point that, that the king, when he gets back, is going to give that person the death sentence. How much more serious is God about how we take care of the church, about the kind of philosophy and doctrines we allow behind the pulpit? And I, I want to conclude with this. We talk about the ramifications of how the minister goes about ministry in the second life, but there's ramifications in this life too. One of my favorite books that I've ever read, which this would be a book I would suggest for the library, it just screams the sufficiency of Scripture. It's called Counseling the Hard Cases. In this book, several pastors were asked to write about the most bizarre and strange and difficult counseling sessions that they had in their ministry and how they went about addressing the issue. I'm going to read you a part of a story, but keep in mind this is a seriously abridged, shortened version, mainly just because of how horrific some of the details were. But this is a true story about a middle-aged woman named Mariana. She underwent 20 years of, of Christian psychology, psychological help. She had been regularly abused by both of her parents on every level imaginable to horrific degrees from before she was even five years old all the way up to when she ran away from college. After she had married her husband, Leon, both were converted through the evangelism of another couple. In order to cope with her past, Mariana began seeing multiple licensed professional Christian counselors, which is what Christian psychologists like to be referred to. One of them told her husband that she was a pathological liar and could not be an adequate wife and mother because her own mother was psychotic. This female counselor encouraged Leon to divorce Mariana, to seek custody of the children, and to keep them away from her. Others hypnotized Mariana and told her that she had multiple personalities, an idea that she had not previously considered before the counseling. Mariana began experiencing flashbacks, vivid re-experiences of earlier abuse. Nightmares were constant. She engaged in self-mutilation, attempted suicide, and was repeatedly hospitalized. Mariana then spent the next several years doing hypnotherapy under her Christian therapist. And while seeing this therapist, Mariana began, quote-unquote, remembering things that she's now quite sure actually never happened. This includes murdering two children born from her relationship with her father 
and being the subject of bizarre satanic rituals. Soon, she transitioned to Dr. Freeman, another Christian psychologist. She met with him as often as three times a week for about eight years. He hypnotized her and led her through healing of the memories, where she was encouraged to recall every detail of her abuse while visualizing Jesus as present to comfort her. She describes the vivid process initiated by Dr. Freeman as 10 times more painful than the initial abuse. She shared with Dr. Freeman that she actually had experienced Jesus' comforting presence during all that abuse as a kid. And this is what he told her. That was not really Jesus. That was an effect of your mental illness. After she attempted suicide again and was confined to a psychiatric hospital for six weeks, her pastor visited her and offered her biblical hope that she could actually change. And this is where she began two years of counseling with a pastor and another biblical counselor at her church. Let me give you the happy ending to this story. I know. (laughs) Mariana and Leon are now trained biblical counselors and are counseling couples together through their church's counseling ministry. Mariana reports from her daughter, reports that her daughter told her recently, you aren't even the same person you were before you began counseling. Her older son recently married and gave Mariana and Leon their first grandson. Although her relationship with the son was once severely damaged, she now describes it as close and cordial. Her relationship with her younger son, younger, youngest son has always been the hardest to restore, but she reports that recently a full reconciliation occurred in this relationship. Mariana tells me that her life was permanently changed by my illustration of her life as a timeline, divided into old and new by the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Prior to counseling, Mariana saw herself as a permanently damaged by her terrible experiences in childhood, powerless to be anything other than a helpless victim. Seeing herself as clothed with the Christ's righteousness and risen to new life gave her hope that she could change the patterns of her past by relying on his power. I've read this story, I read this story like once a week just because of how much I love it. And every time I read it, I think of Mark 5 where you have that woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. Whereas the text says she, she went to every medical professional she possibly could find. And after 12 years of doing this, she lost all of her money, was just as hopeless when she began. And on top of that, she was even suffering more than when she first started seeing these people. And that's exactly what Mariana went through. I want to be clear that God intends the church to be a field hospital for sinners. When you see about how a field hospital operates, whenever a bombing hits or or invasions happen, the nurses and doctors are scourging all over the place, getting everything prepped, making sure they're ready for the casualties about to come in. Just watch the news. One point that Dr. Strand made when elaborating on this point is that you watch the news, you see people transitioning genders left and right, you see kids being brainwashed in the schools thinking that, that you could be whatever gender you want to be. In fact, you see some schools 
putting little boxes in the bathrooms because some people are identified as furries. And even among those people, there's still a remnant. What are we going to do when 10 years from now you have people getting saved out of that kind of past and now they're diagnosed as schizophrenic or manic? How is the church going to help them at that point? Because right now the church is standing on 200 years worth of Freudian and Darwinian straw, hay, and wood. The church is in a desperate need to just burn all this, that project and start from scratch so we can start actually using gold. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, this is my final note. The foundation you're standing on is sinking you straight to hell. You have no standing. You have no hope. You have no purpose to life. You can try to to make your justification um, for for living just just pursuing happiness, and that's all going to be vanity at the end of the day. You can try to justify yourself as being a good person when the reality is you're you're more heinous than you will ever realize before a holy God, and you stand guilty. But here's my message of just pure gold and silver for you today, is that this same God who's on the verge of sending you to hell for all eternity is the same God who loves to show mercy, who loves to show compassion, and who loves to adopt even the most heinous of wicked of sinners. And if you cling to the foundation of Christ's righteousness, his deity, his perfectness, his wisdom, rather than your own filthy rags of wisdom and ability, that's what you need to do to receive eternal life. Let's, let's go to God in prayer. Father, the church has got so far away from the foundation it's, it is next to impossible to find a church that actually has even a hint of gold or, or silver at this point. Father, we ask that, that you, you reform, you revive the churches all over America. Father, we ask that you take all these weak men who allow whatever philosophy comes away behind the pulpit and you take them out of the ministry and you raise up godly men. Father, we ask that that but you start with the Bible Church of Cabot. Father, we ask that, that you be with the elders, be with the pastors, so on that day when they have to give account for the church, there will not be even an ounce of straw or hay. Father, we pray for the, the protection and wisdom of the elders. And Father, we pray that you protect us from wolves that will come in or out of the church. And most importantly, Father, we pray that we... For as long as this church stands, we are Christ-centered. Amen.